Well, it's good to see you all. I'm glad you all are here. We are going to get started. We are going to start in Ephesians chapter 3. If you want to uh, make your way there to Ephesians chapter 3 is where we're going to begin. We have, over the last several weeks, been talking about the subject of what? Prayer. Prayer. That is right. So, even though last Sunday we were observing the Lord's Supper and had some fellowship time, um, the last three times we've been looking at prayer. We looked at the model prayer out of what passage? Matthew. Six. Six, okay. Alright. And then after that we looked at the high priestly prayer of Jesus out of... John, what? John, John 17, right? Okay, so the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17. And then the next week we looked at the disciples' prayer out of Acts 4. That's right. Oh, you guys are just making me feel so proud. All right, so we've looked at the different aspects of prayer. So the idea has been to um, look at it from different angles. So we have the model of Jesus saying, hey, this is a model for how to pray. Then you have the, the practice of Jesus in John 17. And this is how Jesus prayed. And then the disciples in Acts 4 about how they prayed when they got together. They were under arrest. They were under persecution, opposition, how they prayed. So tonight we're going to finish it up. Tonight, um, there's a lot more that we could cover in the in, in the realm of prayer, but sometimes we just kind of move on to different topics. So tonight we're going to wrap it up and looking at Paul's practice of prayer. So Paul is a very prominent figure, especially within the New Testament, um, one of the <coughs> leaders of the early church. Um, writ, the, writ, wrote, not writ, <laughs> fleeted, but wrote most of the New Testament. And so you have many prayers of his that are recorded. So we are going to look at primarily the prayers that was recorded by Paul in the prison epistles. You might recognize the prison epistles, or can anybody tell me what books of the Bible are considered to be the prison epistles? Ephesians? Philippians? Colossians? Is that it? What? Uh, they would classify those as pastoral epistles. Galatians. Galatians, that's right. Okay, so you have Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians are classified as prison epistles. Any under, any guess why they're classified as the prison epistles? They were, prison. they were written from prison. Okay, so you get to First and Second Timothy, First and Second Timothy, and Titus. Those are considered the pastoral epistles. And there's other ones. I mean, you got First Corinthians, First and Second Corinthians, First and Second. Thessalonians, Philemon, there's some other ones, but they believe that the Bible scholars say that these four, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, were written when Paul was in prison, and so that's why they call them a prison epistle. So we're going to look at, not four, because that would take me way too long, so we're going to look at three. We're going to look at Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, and look at the prayers of Paul, specifically, that come out of those three areas, and when we come to those, what we're going to look at is... Who is he writing to? Who is he writing the prayer to? What is he praying about? And why is he praying the prayer that he is praying? Now why do I recommend that? And why why do I ask that we would try it like that tonight? Because a lot of times when it comes to church, especially on Wednesday nights, 
please do not think that I am being demeaning or that I am being um, making light of the prayer requests that are offered. But when we gather in that room, there are what, what do I ask every single Wednesday night? Who we need to add, who we need to update, or who we need to take off the list tonight. And the idea is that people then give prayer requests. And I'm not making light of any of that. But sometimes when we think about how we pray or how we pray for other people, it might be helpful to remember who we're praying for, what we are praying for, and why we are praying for what we are praying. Something to keep in mind about how we pray and the the focus of our prayer and the intention of our prayer and the motivation of our prayer. It's who we're praying for, what are we praying for, and why are we praying for what we are praying for. Just ask ourselves a question. Are the things that we're praying for, are the things that are being reflective in Scripture? So, Ephesians chapter 3 You get down there around verse 14. Now we're going to pick it up. There's a whole lot of context that has taken place in the letter of Ephesians. But we are going to pick it up there in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14. Because the other two we're going to see where Paul puts the prayer at the beginning of the letter. Here he puts it in the middle of the letter. But it's not really in the middle of the letter. When you come to the book, come to the letter of Ephesians, it's broken up in two main divisions. You have the theological division, which is Paul saying, "This is the doctrine. This is how we are supposed to believe. This is how we're supposed to conduct ourselves. All these things." That's chapter one through three, and then you get to chapter four, five, and six, and it's the practical application. So he tells you the theory about the Christian faith, and then the second half, he tells you the practical steps of the Christian faith. So even though we may come here in chapter 3 and may say, well, it's just nestled right in the middle of it, it's actually, he's placing it at the end of the theological portion of the letter. So, chapter 3, verse 14, he writes... For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length, height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So let's look at those three, that that three rubric, if you will. Let's look at this prayer, verses 14 down through verse 22. So who is Paul praying for? Christians, alright? Christians where? In Ephesus, okay? So why would he be praying for Christians in Ephesus? Ephesus. 
So Paul spent a lot of time in Ephesus. You can go back into Acts chapter 17 and in his missionary journey, he actually stops there in Ephesus. And if you go back to the last part of Acts chapter 17, it tells us that he spent over two years at Ephesus serving the church, ministering to the church, leading the church to the point that the ministry was so fruitful there in the town of Ephesus that it says, I'm sorry, I'm Acts 19, not 17. But that it says this in Acts 19 and verse 10, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So Paul's time in Ephesus was so sweet that not only was the church established, the church was grown, but then also the church was used by God to reach the entire area with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he is writing this prayer, not being there, but he's writing this prayer to a people that one, he knew one, he had spent a lot of time and did a lot of life with. And number three, that he had been with them as God used that church to mightily work in the lives of the people around him. So much that Paul eventually sent who to pastor the church at Ephesus? Timothy, that's right. So Timothy that you'll see all throughout the pages of Paul's letters and writings as being one of his companions and being one of the people that helped him when it came time that, hey, I need somebody to help serve and lead the church at Ephesus, he sends kind of his right hand. He seems like his, his best general to go serve. So not only does that say something about the character of Timothy, but it also says something about Paul's affection for the church in Ephesus. So it's not like Paul is just writing to an abstract person, a person he doesn't know. He is writing this to a church that he has intimate knowledge about, that he has great relationships with, a church that he had served two years. So it helps to think about who we are praying for. Sometimes in prayer you can go through the list and you can say, well, you know what, I need to pray for Stacy's great mom's daughter's sister's friend. And we may pray for them, but it's not the same as if we have a relationship or a connection. There's a reason why when you walk, I don't know if they, they may not even do it anymore. Used to, you'd walk out of Walmart, and there, as you walk in between the two set of sliding doors, there would be that whole wall of all the missing children. And not only would you have the names of the children that were missing, their approximate age, when they went missing, a little bit about them, but there would usually be a picture that was there. Why? Because it is more impactful to a person to think about a missing person when they have a picture or a face to go along with a name. And sometimes in our prayer lives, we can become very stale because all we're doing is praying for names that have no significance or no meaning to us. And sometimes we are praying for people that we don't even know why we're praying for them. We're just praying for them, and yet we're missing an opportunity to pray for people in a more passionate way. So you know who he's praying for? What does he pray for? Give me, give me some words that you see here in this prayer that stick out to you. Maybe some action words, some key words, some words that jump off the page at you. Give me some words that, that really just strike you that he is praying for. What is he praying for? Strength. Strength. Okay. Love. What else? Rooted, rooted and grounded. Okay. What else is he praying for? The love of God. The love of God. Okay. Fullness of God. Say that again. Spirit in the inner man. Spirit, spirit in the inner man. Okay. Comprehension. Comprehension. Knowledge. Knowledge. Christ who dwells in our hearts. 
Excuse me? That Christ would dwell in their hearts. That Christ would dwell in their hearts. So yeah, that, and those are all good, and those are all right there, but it's good to just like peer down and say, what is he praying for? And then you think about what we pray for. I pray to pass this test. I pray to have a good day at work. I'm not saying these are bad prayers, and I'm not saying, I'm not trying to make a lot of these prayers. I'm just saying that when we come to Paul and you look about what Paul is praying for, Paul is praying for spiritual needs. Paul is praying for, like you said, he is praying for strength. He is praying for comprehension. He is praying for love. He's praying for the fullness of Christ. He is praying for their spiritual needs. And I think many times we miss that opportunity in the church to pray for spiritual needs because it is quite easier, it is easier to just pray for the physical needs. And we don't pray for the spiritual needs. So you see who he's praying for, what he's praying for, why is he praying this for them? Church. I don't think they. I don't think they were known to be as a rich church. Like Philippi was considered to be more affluent. They know the full dimension of the love of Christ. Okay. Right. Other ideas. Do what, sir? To be in touch with the Lord. To be in touch with the Lord? Okay. I think those are good. I think there's... Do what, sir? So they're to lead the church? Okay. So, yeah. Okay. To know that God is in control? Right. So that God's glory is shown. So that God's glory is shown? Okay. Because they lost their first love. Because, <laughs> okay, they lost, they lost their first And you could do that. You could go back to Revelation 3 and kind of see some problems that were there. But elsewhere, you also find in the letter of Ephesus that they were having issues with unity. And they were having issues with being of one mind and one heart. So that so he says, you know what? Every family in heaven and earth is named according to the riches of glory that he grants you to be strengthened with power through his inner spirit and your being. And this idea that he wants you all to understand that you are one in Christ. So he says to be filled with the fullness of God in verse 19. All those were good. I wrote down, and this is just my my take on it, the why of why he was writing in, writing this prayer is because he wanted to encourage unity in the church. When they understood who they were, they understood their shared identity, they understood their shared purpose, and they understood their shared opportunity in Christ, there was a unity that would come around them because unity was a need then, and unity is still a need now. There's always a need for unity in the church. And as Paul is writing this letter to the Ephesians, I mean, you know who he's praying for, you know what he's praying about, and then you ask the why. Those were good, so they might know the richness of Christ, and they might know this. But I would also add that, so that they might understand who they are in Christ. And they would say, so the 
fighting, the divisions, the unforgiveness, the bad attitudes, those aren't in Christ. And I want you to be a people filled with the fullness of God because when the people are filled with the fullness of God, they are unified in identity and they're unified in purpose. And that is what Acts 19 helped the church reach the entire known region around them in just a matter of two years was because they were unified in their purpose. So, I think it's helpful. You look at the example, you look at the the prayer of Paul in Ephesians 3, and just ask yourself, the who, the what, and the why. Let's go from there. Let's go to Philippians chapter 1. Maybe a page, maybe two pages. To your right. Philippians chapter 1. You get to another prayer. I'm going to start in verse 3 for the sake of context. But I'm going to argue that the prayer really starts in verse 9. But to kind of get the flow of what is being said, let's start in verse 3 and then zoom in on verse 9, 10, and 11. So Philippians 1, Paul writes, I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from this day from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for all yearn for you all with affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's come back. Let's look at these three metrics. Who is he praying for? Okay, the church. He's, he's praying for the church at Philippi. Now, what do we know about the church at Philippi? Affluent? Yes, ma'am. They were. They had more money than other communities around them. What's Paul's connection to Philippi? They didn't stone him, so this is Acts 16. So remember, he gets the Macedonian call. He goes to from the west or from the east to the west across the Aegean Sea. He lands, um, comes across Lydia, who was the seller of the fine purple goods. They are there ministering in the town of Philippi. The demon possessed girl is following Paul and Silas around. Paul turns around, casts the demon out of the little girl, the little fortune telling girl. The owners of the little fortune telling girl realize they are losing their source of revenue, and so they drag Paul and Silas. They drag him in front of the magistrates and say, hey, these people are here and they're up to no good. And it tells you in Acts 16 that the magistrates stripped them and beat them and then took them and handed them over to the jailer, the jailer who says that he put their feet in stocks in the inner prison. Does that sound familiar? Right? 
So then the, the Bible goes on there in Acts 16 and says that Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns aloud at midnight. The earthquake took place. The stalks fell off. The jail doors were opened. The jailer wakes up realizing that he would be killed because in that time the Roman culture was that if you were in charge of a prisoner and that prisoner escaped, then the Roman culture, then you had to give your life for the sake of the prisoner's life that you allowed to get away. And so he grabs the sword ready to kill himself rather than to be killed by the Romans. Somehow, Paul knows this is going on because Paul yells from inside the prison... Don't kill yourself. We're all here. I always wonder, you know, you, you're reading this and it doesn't tell you how Paul knew that the jailer woke up. It doesn't tell you how Paul knew that he took his sword. It doesn't tell you how Paul was knew that he was ready to kill himself. The spirit, yes, but, it, it, you know, all this takes place. And so the jailer's outside. He hears a voice from inside the prison. Don't kill yourself. We're all here. He grabs his mag-like flashlight, 4D cell type, and he runs in there and all the prisoners are still in place. And not only Paul and Silas stayed put, but all the rest of the prisoners, we have no idea how many prisoners were in there, but enough prisoners were in there that they were all in there. Can you imagine that conversation? Maybe the spirit again, Mr. Mark, but you imagine, you know, Paul and Silas and some bad dude criminal is in there and he gets ready to get up and I can just imagine Paul looking at him going, sit! <laughs> you know, stay or something. You know, there was some supernaturalness about it. He runs in, sees Paul and Silas, and what does it say? Took them home, cleaned their wounds, put food in front of them. Paul and yeah, Paul and Silas told them about Jesus. The whole household got saved. The next morning, the magistrates get back together and say, you know what? We were probably a little harsh than them two fellers. Let's just go ahead and give you know, let's go ahead and let them loose. So the magistrates come back to the jailer and say, let him go. The jailer comes to Paul and Silas and says, hey, they let you go. And Paul and Silas are like, nope. No, we're Roman citizens. We were mistreated. We were beaten without cause. They can at least come and uh, say they're sorry first. This is my paraphrase. So they come, say they're sorry, and they let them go. All that to say, Paul and Silas were familiar with the people of Philippi. They had experience in Philippi. They had witness. They had uh, given their witness there in Philippi of their um, devotion to the church. But there's another aspect of the church of Philippi that I want you to remind you about. And you see this in Philippians chapter 4. In Philippians 4, Paul is talking about the provision of God. And he says in verse 14, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians, you yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even the Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Translation, the church in Philippi was the first church that supported him monetarily. For season of life in the, the missionary Baptist tradition, their mission funding organization is set up differently. In that context, Adam and Casey and family decide they're going to go and they're going to serve in Africa. They've got to go around and uh, deputate, not deep, dep, what's the, it's a D word. <laughs> no, it's not deportation and it's not deposition or deputation. 
Anyway, so they go around from church to church to church and saying, hey, we're going to go with this church, enter in a partnership with us and help us support us financially for a season of life. We can still do it also at Southern Baptist churches, and there's a lot of Southern Baptist churches that still not only support cooperative program, but also support individual missionaries. So Paul says, hey, when I was doing this missionary journey, I was asking for people to help support me financially, but no one was willing to do it except for you all. And not only did you all help me by sending me a love offering, you did it twice. So they were financial supporters of Paul. You may say, well, why in the world does that make a difference? Well, because ministry costs money. And you're a man that is serving the Lord, and you're a man that is serving in the mission field, and when you get to eat because somebody took up an offering and blessed you, that's a big deal. That means a lot that you have that kind of support. So, the who he is praying for and to the church at Philippi, a church that he had relationship with, a church that he had connection with, and a church that had monetarily supported him. That's the who. Now, the what. Go back to the prayer. Philippians 1 Verse 9, 10, and 11, throw me out some words that strike you of what he is praying for. Discernment. Discernment. Love. Love. Knowledge. Righteousness. Righteousness. Fullness. Fullness. Okay, what else? Anybody see anything else that strikes them? Hope for the future. Hope for the future. Okay. Patience. Patience. Encouragement. Encouragement. Do what? Calmness. Calmness. Okay. Those are all good. And you see all those right there. Now let's go to the third aspect. Why is he praying that for them? Motivate them. Keep them on the right track. Backslide. Okay. Keep them on the right track. So they stay pure and blameless. So their love would abound. So the love would abound. Okay. Give them purpose. Give them purpose. Could it be because they needed all these things? Yeah, I, I think many times, I mean... The reason why he's praying for it because he realizes you all need. You all need more knowledge. You all need more love. You all need more righteousness. You all need more compassion. You all need more wisdom. You all need more discernment. You all need more holiness. You all need these things. And you may say, well, well, hold up, Spence. How do you know they needed all those things? Because he's praying for them in for all of these things. Because he recognized that these were needs that they had. Has anything changed in 2,000 plus years? The church still needs love. The church still needs wisdom. The church still needs discernment. The church still needs righteousness and holiness. The people that we pray for, the names, the faces, they still need love and discernment and righteousness. You know, there's sometimes that we are praying for a situation for the person to receive physical relief when maybe we should be asking if they need spiritual revival. 
And I'm not saying don't pray for the spiritual relief, but could it be that the spiritual condition is a result of an unrepentant sin? And therefore, maybe the way way should be praying for is their spiritual needs before their physical needs. I think sometimes we just assume that we got it all together. Sometimes we just assume that we don't need anything. I would encourage you to think about that when Paul is writing this, he knows what they need because of his position of spiritual leadership. In addition, he knows that all of these characteristics that he lays down in verse 9 through 11 are marks of growth and maturity. That when you are being faithful and when you are being obedient and when you are pursuing after God, these are the characteristics that you will exhibit. Imagine me looking at you and saying, you know what, that little old Black-hearted sinner. Is that right, Van? What's Wretched black-hearted sinner. A little wretched black-hearted sinner named Micah that's up in the nursery right now. You know what? He is 15 years old. Some of you would say, no, he's not. And oh no, he's 15 years old. No, he's not. Well, how do you know he's not? Because he acts like he's not even two years old. Well, that's kind of judgmental. No, that's just a fact, right? Because in our maturity, we assume that there are markers that mark maturity physically in life. And yet, we have a lot of chronologically mature, spiritually immature people walking around saying, I am a Christian, I'm right where I need to be. And yet, when you look at the characteristics or the spiritual characteristics of their life... They are mired in immaturity. So we see, we see an example that Paul is saying, these are the marks of growth and maturity. As we grow spiritually, we should grow in love. As we grow spiritually, we should grow in discernment. As we grow spiritually, we should grow in the fullness of Christ. As we grow spiritually, our lives, our progress should be glory and praise to God. As we grow spiritually, we should have greater knowledge than we had before. Those are marks that should mark our growth in Christ. So when we're praying, and we're praying for people, are we praying for people to grow in their faith, and to grow in their knowledge, and to grow in spiritual maturity? That's what Paul is praying for. He knows who he's praying to, and he knows what he's praying for. And we say, why is he praying? He's praying because these are, this, these are the things that they need. Not the things that they want or not the things that would make them feel better for the moment. But these are the things they need for a thousand years from now. I have been guilty of defaulting to superficial prayers. I have been guilty of defaulting to just a rote pattern of prayer. Sometimes it's good to have that consistency. And then sometimes it's a danger because you're just going through the motions. And sometimes it's a danger because I start finding myself just praying for the surface, temporal, physical, and I'm not thinking about what do they need spiritual. Both examples that Paul gives us 
He's not praying for the physical. He's praying for the spiritual. His mind, his focus, his heart is on the spiritual more so than the physical. Last one. Go go to, turn to, please, Colossians chapter 1. Please, Colossians chapter 1. Same thing here. I'm going to suggest that the prayer is actually verse 9 down through verse 14. But for the sake of context, I'm going to start in verse 3. And then if you will zoom in on verse 9 through 14 as the prayer there in the letter of Colossians. So, verse 3. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. And since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you indeed in the whole world in its bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you have learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all the power according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. In light, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So you zoom in on verse 9 through verse 14. Ask ourselves the same questions. Who is Paul writing this prayer to slash for? Okay? The church at Colossae. We're going to do like family feud. I, I kind of ballpark it. Okay? So he is writing to the church of Colossae. Now! No, 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 no. Okay, so that's Jeopardy. It's not family feud. Mm. So, so if you're upstairs on Wednesday nights, as we got pushed out by the student ministry, if you're upstairs on Wednesday nights, and we've been walking through these books of the Bible, all right, when we got to the book of Colossians, there was something that was unique and peculiar about the book of Colossians versus the other books of the Bible that Paul writes. He didn't go there. Thank you. I, was, I thought, you know, nobody's going to remember. Thank you, Mark. Okay, so one of the unique things is that we don't have any record biblically that Paul ever went to Colossae. So how did Paul take up writing a letter to the church at Colossians and how would the church Colossians know about Paul and how would Paul know about them? Who? 
you're getting close. You're getting close. You're getting close. No, well, no, no, it wasn't. It wasn't uh, Priscilla and Aquila. Epaphras. Epaphras. Okay. So the the biblical scholars, what they think is, is that while Paul was at Ephesus and during the ministry, Epaphras was in Ephesus. Ephesus was a large trade route. There was lots of people that were coming and traveling back and forth. And so some people would come into Ephesus for a season of life, and they would hear the gospel, and then when they would go back to their hometown, then they would take the news, or they would take the message of Jesus Christ back to their hometown. So it is, it, it is believed and assumed by most conservative scholars that Epaphras came to Ephesus, heard about Jesus, was taught and discipled by Paul in the ministry that was going on there at Ephesus, and then he heads back to Colossae, he gets to Colossae, and he establishes a church, a church is birthed there in Colossae, and then news gets back to Paul, hey Paul, you remember that guy? Epaphras, Epaphras, I'm going to work on it. Okay, remember that guy, Epaphras, you know, that guy that you disciple, that guy that you led to the Lord, well now, he went to this next town where he's from, and he has started a church, and so Paul is writing to that church to encourage them, also to affirm the work of Epaphras, and try to say, hey, you know what, we may not have met, but we're related spiritually, and I want to help support you and encourage you in the work that you're doing. So there was communication from the church of Colossians through the ministry of Epaphras to Paul. So Paul had knowledge about them. He knew he knew about them even though he had never met them in person. Make sense? Okay? So I think that's unique because, you know, sometimes we say, well, it's kind of hard to pray for someone that I don't know. Well, I know it's harder to pray for someone you don't know, but can you still pray for people that you never met or you do not know personally? Yes. It is possible. Well, then how do I pray? You pray like Paul. Well, I'm not Paul. I said pray like Paul, not pray as Paul. Pray like Paul. So Paul gives us an example here in Colossians about how to pray for people. Even though Paul had never met them, they were still related spiritually. And even though Paul had never met them, they were still other human beings. Now, what do we know about our fellow human beings? We all have our failures, our weaknesses, and our shortcomings. Would that be a better way to say it? Okay, that would be a better way to say it. So, what we know about all human beings is none of us are perfect. And we know that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God and we've all sinned. We all know that we put on a better front than what we really are. We all know that we are some messed up needy individuals at times. We all know that we are not nearly as mature or not nearly as holy or as righteous as we should be or could be. We all know that we could grow and mature more in our faith. So whether you know somebody personally or not, if you know that that person is a person, then you already know something about that person. And if you know that person is a saved person, then you know something else about that person. Does that make sense? I came home from my military deployment at the end of 2003. They get you off this plane, and they get you out in formation. And you know, all I want to do is see my family. I don't care about doing some more marching. I don't care about going through all this pomp and circumstance, this ceremony. Let me go. Okay, you've controlled my life long enough. Let me go. No, 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 no. They're not going to miss an opportunity to grandstand. So they march us in formation. 
and they march us into this big hangar. And as we're marching into this hangar, on both sides there are like stands, almost like a, a ball game. You know, you have those fold-up stands. And the stand is just full of people that are excited that you're home, right? Okay, so you, as you're marching in, some of you can some of you can relate. When you're marching in, you're not supposed to be like, "Hi, how you doing?" I mean, this isn't college graduation. Okay, there's a certain amount of you're supposed to maintain your military composure. So they march us in, and of course, we are facing this way. All of our friends and family are this way, and me being who I am, I'm like, I, I'm kind of wondering who came and who didn't come. You know, it's just like you never know. You never know. So I am sitting there, and you're not supposed to let. Your eyes are never supposed to like, uh, your, your face is for sure not supposed to turn, but your eyes aren't supposed to turn. So we get in there, we're in formation, and I think we're at parade rest. So we're all supposed to be sitting there, and I'm like, I don't care what this person you say. And here some, comes some guy that I never saw across the pond. I never heard about him across the pond. But somehow he thought he had something to share with me. And he gets up there and he talks about this company and all blah, 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 blah. And he made one statement that to his credit has stuck with me. He said, as of this point, we have all drank from the same canteen. Now, when he said that, I thought to myself, stop it. Let's just, let's just get this over with. Say dismiss and let me do, let me go, let me go on my visit. But that, that word has stuck with me that we've all drank from the same canteen. And I find myself thinking uh, after that, well, what does that mean? And, and that was just a dumb thing to say. And then the more I thought about it, what he was, what I think he was saying was that we had all had a shared experience and we all now have a shared identity. And so now we all have something in common that we can relate to. The same way that if we had all drank from the same physical canteen, we had all had the same experience in life, so there's a connection that's there. I think that analogy, that metaphor, carries on in the church world. If you've come to the point that you've repented of your sins, confessed of your sins, and asked Jesus to save you, we all have a shared experience. If you come to the point that you realize that you weren't enough on your own, that you needed to be saved, that's a shared experience. And so it doesn't matter whether you know the person by name or whether you know all about the person. If you know that that individual is a person, that gives you a certain amount of information. And then if you know that they're a saved individual, then that gives you a second amount of information. And there's a certain number of things that come into the church that just means that we have a touch point, that we have some way of identifying with one another because we are saved. That make sense? So the story goes, historically speaking, where you get the little fish symbol. Some people put it on their vehicles. Some people put it elsewhere. The old historical saying goes that when two Christians would meet each other in a way of knowing if one was, if one was a Christian, if they were or were not, that one of the individuals in the sand would draw the bottom half of the fish symbol. And then if the person they were talking to was a Christian and was like-minded, they would draw the top half. And that was a kind of a way of a challenging password or the, the secret handshake or the little or whatever the little secret stuff we have today is. But some way of being able to say that you know who I am and I know who you are. That makes sense? So that's what Paul's doing. So he's, he's praying for people, not because he knows them personally, but because he knows them spiritually. So the first two examples, Paul's praying for people he knew personally. Now he's praying for people that he knew spiritually. What is he praying for? 
verse 9 down through verse 14. What is he praying for? There, there are all kinds of words you can throw out here. What is he praying for? Knowledge. knowledge. Oh, all three prayers. He's praying for knowledge. He might think that we need help in the knowledge department. What else is he praying for? Wisdom. wisdom. Again. He's praying for wisdom again. Bear fruit. Bear fruit. Oh, we're going to come back to that one. Spiritual understanding. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Boldness. Boldness. Okay. Patience. 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 Ooh, we don't want to pray for patience. Discernment. Discernment. Okay. Many of the same things that he was praying for for the other people, right? And there's like a pattern there. When you look at him, he's praying for many of the same things over and over. But there's something unique in Colossians 1 that he hasn't prayed for in the English translations in the same way. And that's what Matt said. For them to bear fruit. That takes you back to what book? What letter? Galatians chapter 5 verse 23, 22, 24, 25, what? 32. No. So you have the fruit of the Spirit, right? So in Galatians chapter 5, he says, this is the fruit of the Spirit. Now he spent the previous chapter in Galatians 5 talking about all the things of the fruit of the flesh, and then he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And they are... Love, joy, peace, <laughs> All right, so love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Does that sound right? Right, so... No, I'm not... <laughs> My song days are... One and over. So, um, so he's praying for them to bear fruit. Why? Because the way you know what something is is by the fruit of that thing. Right? I mean, sometimes we try to make this more complicated, and sometimes we try to uh, uh, try to hide and play cups and balls and, and stuff like that. But the same basic illustration that you see in Matthew chapter seven, that you see here in Colossians chapter one, that you see in Galatians chapter five, is that an apple tree will produce apple fruit if it's a healthy tree. If it you have an apple tree and it's not producing apple fruit, it's because it's not a healthy tree, or because it's not an apple tree. So if you have an apple tree that's a healthy apple tree, it's going to produce apple fruit. And if it doesn't, either it's not healthy or it's not an apple tree. This is not complicated. So Christians that show up, that say that they are healthy Christians that do not bear fruit, either you're not healthy or you're not a Christian. Now, the world says, well, that's judgmental. You can't take that hard, rigid stance. I am not being judgmental or taking a hard, rigid stance. I'm telling you, this is what the Bible says. You will know a tree by its fruit. So, Miss Stacy buys peach trees, right? So, she plants peach trees. Five years, two years, whenever that happens. I don't have it all figured out yet. But all of a sudden, it sets fruit. And you see the flower. And then you see it set fruit. And then you watch the fruit develop. And then eventually, the goal is that you get fruit that you then can consume and say, Huh, I have fruit. Now, the 
time comes and the flowers bloom and the fruit sets and she has watermelons drooping from the branches. I want to see that. You can't say that that is a peach tree. And yet in our in all of our wisdom as humans we twist this around and say well even though Bob says he's a Christian does not bear fruit we are still going to treat Bob like a Christian and what's even worse is that many times when we pray, we're not praying for people to produce fruit. We're not praying for people to bear fruit. And we're not encouraging people to put on fruit. Now if we have more time, we can go into the idea of versus bearing fruit versus producing fruit. Because it's my personal conviction that we do not produce fruit. We bear fruit. The Spirit at work in us is what produces the fruit. We are just simply the bearers of the fruit. And we can go down that rabbit trail at a different time. But what Paul is saying in this letter to Colossae is, My prayer for you is that you bear fruit. So every one of us in this room that claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, even though your fruit may be a peach, your fruit may be a nectarine, your fruit may be a persimmon. Your fruit may be a shriveled up apple. I don't know. But all of us should be bearing fruit in one way or another. Now it may look differently. It may be in a different avenue. It may be in a different way. And that's why he said the fruit of the Spirit is not just love. No. The fruit of the Spirit is a whole wide things to give us room for diversity. But if you're not bearing fruit, either you're not a Christian or you're not a healthy Christian. Not because the preacher said so, because the Bible said so. And if you say, well, you know what, we don't see that anywhere else. We see it all throughout nature. A sweet couple was here this morning and they just had a mama that had some baby pigs. They said, do you want one of the pigs? And I said, no, no thank you. I said, why are you having pigs? And they said, well, we didn't intend to have baby pigs. I said, well, do you have a male pig? Well, yes. And obviously you have a female pig. Well, yes. Well, you understand how mamas end up having babies, right? So to say you didn't intend for it or you didn't plan on it, that might be true. But to say that you had an immaculate conception in the pigs is not a valid statement. Well, then the story came out that the mama got loose visited old dad, nature took its course, da 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 da. But at first at, at first story it was like, oh no, this was just this was just a you know a freak accident. All of a sudden she laid down and had babies. No it's not. <laughs> no it's not. There's an order to nature. If you want to bear fruit, it starts with being spilled filled by the Spirit. Pursuing the things of the Spirit. That's what Paul's talking about, being full, the fullness of Christ. Because the fullness of Christ is then what sets the flower, and then what sets the fruit, and it's then what produces the fruit, and then you are the bearer of that fruit. So that's what Paul's saying. What is Paul praying for? He's praying for them to bear fruit. Why? Past time. Let's ask the last question. Why? Why is he praying for this for them? Okay, to further his mission. 
Okay, so I'm just going to tell you where my mind's at because some of you are looking like, what, what does he want us to say? What does he, what does he want us to say? Okay, so you go, to, you go to a place and you might pencil this down or just think about this to go back to later tonight. You go back to a place like Romans chapter 12, verses 9 down through verse 21. And Paul talks about the marks of a true Christian. And he goes and explains there in, in Romans chapter 12 that true Christians, that this is how you live, this is how you believe, this is how you do everything. And he's really talking about the fruit of the Spirit, but he's saying these are some visible, external cues that that person is a Christian. What if Paul is writing this to the church of Colossians because he realized that the greatest testimony that they can have for the kingdom of God is when they are bearing fruit. I'm in Memphis and we're there at the strip on Memphis where all the restaurants are at and we're walking out of the restaurant and a guy comes out our guy walks up and he hands me a chick track. A chick track. Are you seriously? Every single one of you? None of you know what a chick track is. Oh, you, you, okay, we're, we're obvious. Obviously, we need some reform, we need some, we need some remedial training. Okay, so chick track. C-H-I-C. Right, Adam? Is that how you spell it? Okay, but so it's it's if you've seen one, you've seen them all. Okay, it's a particular style of a gospel track, and it's got cartoon, dated cartoon, comic book style um, imagery on there. I'm, I'll I'll bring you some, and we'll do some show and tell one day. Okay, but it's a it's a it's a particular type, and they became known as chick tracks. Oh my gracious, none of you all. This, y'all, just now you're making me question your salvation. So I'm just, so, but it was, it was one of those things that you have churches and you can just buy these chick tracks by the cases, okay, and they just go out and they hand them. So my point is, before I got you spun off, my point is, I walked out of this restaurant, a guy just comes up, hands me a chick track, said, here you go, and he kept walking. And I'm looking at this thing going, you didn't tell me who your name was, you didn't tell me about, what ministry you're with, you're not telling me even why you're giving this to me. You're just giving to me and walking away. You missed an opportunity to bear fruit, buddy. You missed an opportunity to say, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus, and I would like for you to be a follower of Jesus if you're not, and this thing tells you how you can have a right relationship with Jesus. You're missing opportunities to bear fruit. My mind, my sanctified imagination, Paul is writing this because he realized the greatest impact that people can have for the kingdom of God is by bearing fruit. And how do we bear fruit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All of these things are how we bear fruit. So he says, you would have the greatest impact, not have the best song service. Not have the most dynamic preaching. The greatest impact a church can have for the kingdom of God is not having the nicest facility. Or the coolest carpet. Or the most interactive website. The greatest impact this church can have in a community is for its people, for its followers of Jesus Christ to be bearing fruit to all of the people around them. And that's what Paul's praying for. So, what are we praying for? What are we, what constitutes our prayers? Please help this food to be nourishment for my body. I've got plenty of nourishment. I, I, don't, I, don't always, I don't always need more nourishment. Please bless the hands that have prepared this meal. 
well, how about please make sure the hands were washed before they prepared this meal? I mean, there's things that we say. I'm not saying they're bad. Please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying they're bad. I'm just saying we're missing an opportunity. We're missing an opportunity to pray for the real needs in this church and the real needs in this community. We're missing the opportunity to pray for the things that are going to have an eternal effect. We're missing those opportunities. Paul understood the greatest needs of the people that he ministered to, their greatest needs were spiritual. And he understood that their greatest weakness was the flesh. And so the focus of his prayer was not on ingrown toenails and bumped heads. His prayer was for the condition of their soul and their reflection of the glory of God in their lives. So, what are we praying for? Think about the things that we pray for. Think about the things we ask for prayer for. Think about the things that we go through on our list. And think about if there's not opportunities that we are missing to pray for spiritual needs. Because we're not even thinking about spiritual needs. All we're thinking about is the physical, the temporal, and the things that really do not have that grave an impact in the kingdom of God. That's what Paul is praying for, and I would challenge us as a church to consider, to think, to dwell on ways that we can pray for the spiritual needs of one another before we pray for the physical needs. I hope that my children grow up mostly healthy, move out, find them a sweet daughter-in-law that Jaylene and I can spoil, give me a house full of grandkids, and do right by their families. But none of that makes a difference if they're going to go to hell when they die. None of that makes a difference if they don't know Jesus. None of that makes a difference if I don't want them to have a right relationship with God. I know that college has its place. But my experience was that college didn't push me closer to God. And there's a lot of young people that we are sending to college for an education and they're getting more than just a secular education. And we need to be concerned about that. We need to be praying for that. There's opportunities that we have. So yes, I look and I say, yes, this is what I pray for for my children. But if I stop there and say, Oh Lord, would you please give Luke a nice, patient wife, truck full of grandchildren, a job that he can keep food on the table, and you know that he stays out of trouble and people think he's a nice guy. If I stop there, what have I done? I've stopped short of what Luke really needs, and that is a relight a right relationship with Jesus. So whether he has a wife, whether he has kids, whether he has a job, 
Whatever the case may be, I want him to have a right relationship with Jesus. There's a breakdown that we have right now because we have parents that are praying for their kids to be successful in the eyes of the world. And then when they say they want to be a missionary or they want to serve in a context that is not successful in the eyes of the world, we're like, we don't know what's going on. Because we're not praying for them to be right with Jesus. We're praying for them to be right in the eyes of man. And we're missing that. So if you're a parent like me, pray that you all move out someday. (laughs) Pray that they marry well. Pray that they provide for their families well. But don't forget that beyond all of that, before all of that, pray that they fall in love and stay in love with Jesus. Amen. So it's not a matter of just your kids. It's a matter of your friends, your family, your co-workers, anybody. We're missing that element of praying for the spiritual because we stop short at the physical. Questions? Thoughts? Pushbacks? I've held you too long. It's probably the middle part of the second corner by now. Yeah, we're about to come. Uh, I, I got some strange looks. Maybe Maddox. Maybe Maddox. Maybe Maddox. This is not all there is about prayer. But hopefully maybe this is a starting point, something to prod our thinking about how we pray. One more time. I'm not saying that praying for Aunt Thelma's Broken toe is uncalled for. I'm not saying for putting Uncle Thelma's, Aunt Aunt Thelma's, Aunt Thelma's. She's she's fluid. Thelma might be fluid. So I'm not saying that putting Aunt Thelma's broken toe on the prayer list is wrong. And I'm not saying next Wednesday night we get up there and like brother's like, oh, we can't do that because the preacher already said that. We, no, I'm not saying don't pray for those things. And I'm not saying that praying for those things are wrong. And I'm not saying you shouldn't ask for other people to pray for those things. Please do not misunderstand me. Please don't tell people what, well, the preacher said this and then they misunderstand me. I am just encouraging and challenging us. Are we stopping short of the full depth of what we can pray for. Because we stop short at Aunt Thelma's broken toe and we think, well, that's all we got to pray for. No, we've got a lot more we can pray for in addition to that. So let's pray for Aunt Thelma's broken toe and let's pray for Aunt Thelma's spiritual relationship with God. And let's pray for the opportunity to show Christ to Aunt Thelma. And let's pray that God would soften Aunt Thelma's heart so as she's recovering from her broken toe and as we're checking on her and her broken toe that we have an opportunity to tell her about Jesus and for God to work in her heart for her to come to a right relationship with Jesus Christ. Please don't tell anybody. Preacher said, no more broken toes. No more organ recitals. Just, that's not where I'm at. Okay? Love y'all. Appreciate you all. Six o'clock on Wednesday, we'll eat. Have a glorious feast. And then we'll have our services. So let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness. God, we thank you for the models and the examples that we have from Jesus. 
from the disciples, from Paul. God, may you widen our prayers. May you deepen our prayers. And may we be more mindful of the spiritual than we are even at the present. And may we be a people that are mighty in prayer. Not for the sake of our glory or for the sake of our achievement, but for the sake of your name and for the sake of your kingdom. May you give us spiritual eyes more clearly than we've ever had before. And may we pray for the spiritual in a way and in a depth of dimension that we've never prayed before. And we'd ask all these things in your son's name. Amen.